This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by Libby Purvis, Danny Finkelstein and making his first appearance, Giles Wittell. And these are our topics this week. Anne Widdicombe complains that it's very difficult to be an active Christian in Britain today because militant secularism stops people in workplaces wearing crosses or saying God bless or offering to pray for people. She says stances of conscience are prevented by political correctness and equality law. I say come on Anne, render unto Caesar and also show don't tell. That applies to other religions too. What is the point in Britain having influence if it doesn't use it? And what better cause could there be than trying to prevent Jean-Claude Juncker from being president of the European Commission? For both procedural and substantive reasons, Juncker is the wrong president for the Commission. And this matters even if you believe that the EU must only be a single market. It's wrong to let the issue go just because opposing him makes us look difficult. I'd like to talk about what Putin does next. Little mentioned in our hyperventilating about the loss of Crimea and possibly of eastern Ukraine as well, is his loss of the rest of Ukraine. That is now pretty much settled for the first time since 1991, and Putin now needs more distractions from both this strategic defeat and from his flatlining economy. Will he turn east to, say, Kyrgyzstan? People there fear he will, and so do I because it happens to be a wonderful place. Well, we look forward to hearing more about Kyrgyzstan, this wonderful place, a little bit later. But let's start off with a land called Widdicombe Land, um, Libby. And in Widdicombe Land, it's very hard to be a Christian. That's what uh, the former Tory MP thinks of Britain today. And you're not very sympathetic to her, I, I No, sense. I'm not. I mean, for one thing, I was brought up to believe it was supposed to be difficult. Uh, you know, um, blessed are you and men revile you and persecute you. She should be thrilled. But also, Christians are actually really being persecuted and murdered all over the world. And mm. here, you just get them being a bit miffed. In fact, uh, complaining about equality law, I mean, the, that clearly means gay marriage. I just say, render under Caesar, obey the law. And we are in a, a church. Churches have exemptions 
Yeah, absolutely. For that the, religious freedom. And we have an Archbishop of Canterbury and churches everywhere. But the other important point is this I really think it applies to all religions. Show works better than tell. And going around condemning people and moaning is disastrous, whether you're a Christian threatening gays with hell or a maverick Muslim patrol saying women cover up. Uh, the only way to spread a faith, if that's what you want to do, and presumably Anne does, is to be so kind and thoughtful and unselfish and modest and benevolent and joyful and graceful under pressure that everyone says, oh, what what some of she's having and I don't really notice these qualities surfacing in most of good old Anne's public pronouncements do you <laughs> perhaps not but just to be a devil's advocate if that's the right expression on this occasion um, um, what uh, do you think that we're in the middle of this row of uh, Islamic extremism infiltrating schools in Birmingham and a lot of people seem to be taking the opportunity to hit out at faith schools generally and i think you've probably got a point the christians aren't particularly persecuted in britain today certainly not compared to the rest of the world but are we at the beginning of a period when actually faith schools for example will come under quite severe attack by secularists i'm afraid i think we are i mean i i was uh, at a convent school because my, my mother was a catholic and uh, my children were at a school which had quite a strong anglican anglican sort of lean to it and they were both very good schools but i am actually starting to think that no let's be american let us just keep religion if you want your children educating as muslims christians sikhs whatever you do it you do it at home you take them on saturday you take them on sunday you inculcate it at home let us wipe it out I mean, the idea of, I was looking today at the thing about... Wipe it out? You're sounding, you're sounding like Matthew <laughs> you know, Paris more and more every day. Wipe it out of the educational system. Right. I was looking today at that thing about um, Arabic, um, Arabic texts on the walls of those schools mm. uh, about the power of prayer. Well, I grew up in a convent school with lots of texts about prayer and God and stuff on the walls. And I don't remember it ever having the slightest spiritual impact on me. You know, mm. the thing which did was the behavior of the best of my teachers and the beliefs and the faith and the kindness and tolerance and democracy indeed of the best of my teachers and that's what should be coming out of schools not this I, the sense from these schools whether they are really inculcating extremist um, muslim views or not is a, just a sense of a bearing down of this is how to be this is the only way these to schools, be this is course, the attitude to these take schools in birmingham are of course secular schools yes and that's absolutely school. critical danny finkelstein yeah uh, because Actually, there's a link between what Anne Whittacombe has said and what's happening in Birmingham. These schools were not being pushed towards these ideologies through the medium of faith in education. They were being pushed to it by the medium of using equalities legislation, actually, to argue that everyone's religion should be equally respected and therefore they would be pushing out the head teacher for not showing enough respect for uh, their religious background. So I think it's a confusion to suggest that what's, what's at stake here is faith education. Actually, this is a political attempt uh, to take over these schools on behalf of what is actually a sort of well, an international political agenda uh, that is related to Islam, but actually is not actually really about religion. Uh, I, my children, um, well, my youngest child and, and my oldest who did before go to a faith primary school, and I found it both important in terms of the community we live in. It provided them with a very good education and a sense of belonging. It taught them something about their heritage, which I thought was really important. And I'm very defensive of it as a right for people um, who have faith themselves or who want to belong to uh, communities. I think it's something they ought to be allowed to do. Um, what I'm against is extremist ideology of any kind and had a faith school or any other school moved in the way that these schools have uh, towards sort of 
unacceptable indoctrination and unacceptable intimidation of anyone who took a different view, then obviously I'd be opposed to it. But I think those are quite separate things. But surely it's also about the homogenisation. I mean, I think one of those frightening things about these communities which we have allowed to grow up and be absolutely exclusive is one of the kids was saying, well, yeah, no, no, so it's 98% of people here are, are Asian and Muslim. It's an Asian Muslim school, he said. Mm. Well, that's terrible. It means that anybody who isn't really cannot move into that area and cannot take their children to that school, which is a kind of a, uh, it's a kind of racism. It's horrible. Mm. Can, I, can I ask you directly, Libby? Are you worried about faith schools or are you worried about Muslim schools? Because a lot of people seem I'm to I'm now be... worried about all faith schools, really? to is, be is honest. I, I, I agree with Danny up to a point, but I think in the state system, we've actually got to end it. You know, if people want to pay, have Sunday schools, have private faith schools. No, it's now all faith schools. Yeah, well, I've been thinking this for a while. I haven't wanted to. You know, I've, I've regretted some of the things that Danny's talking about. And I hope that the, the cult, that culturally, you know, history of Christianity and so on will always be taught properly mm-hmm. in schools. History of Islam will be taught properly in schools. But I think that overarching sense that this is how to be is not appropriate any longer for state okay. education. Well, I, I'm dying to come back to the, on the take on this whole idea that secularism is somehow the neutral state of belief, but um, I, we, we, we haven't got enough time, and I must bring Giles in. And Giles, you uh, represented the Times in America. You worked for the Times in America for a long time, and there they do have this very clear separation of church and state. There was the big battle by Republicans in the past. I don't know whether they're still pursuing it to have prayer in school. Mm. And They were defeated in all of that, and yet religion fries in America in yes. a way that it doesn't in Britain. Do we have something to learn from from that? Or yes. I mean, is I, it just two different traditions? I think the most obvious lesson is is the one you, you specify, that religion thrives despite the, the rigid separation of church and state in schools. The arguments that the Christians ended up losing about prayer in schools were in many cases uh, absurd and, and similar to those happening in, in uh, Birmingham now, uh, they occurred in school districts which were overwhelmingly evangelically Christian, and it seemed to the parents and politicians representing them obvious, an open and, sh- open and shut case that they should be allowed to open and close the, the day at school w- with a prayer. But um, I think that did betray a fundamental misunderstanding of what the schools were for in their children's lives, just as in Birmingham now. This is an incredibly important story, and I think today's reporting showing how how much pressure was has been I put say on... I we're recording on Tuesday, so when you say today, we mean in Tuesday, are, yeah. Yes, t- Tuesday's reporting showing how much pressure was put on head teachers by parents as well as governors mm. shows just how deep... The misunderstanding is, and, I, and I, I apologize if this sounds condescending, about the role of the schools that these kids are going to. It, it, it is not to impose on kids a particular worldview. It is, uh, and I don't, know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that I wrote today's leader on Tuesday's this, on leader, this yeah. Tuesday's <laughs> leader uh, on this subject. It is to um, nourish learning and broad-mindedness and tolerance. Now, I, I, I understand that there's a whole separate argument about whether secularists have gone too far in their own intolerance of, mm. of religion. Uh, but I think, I, I think what has emerged on Tuesday, or this week generally, <laughs> is that a, a, very, a sadly very large number of this homogenized body, uh, the parent body in East Birmingham, just don't understand what school's for. Yeah. 
Okay, well, look, for those who are listening and are Time subscribers and want to read the leader that Giles may have written, um, you can go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and um, I will put up a link there for you to read that piece and for other articles that we're discussing. Before we move on, though, just, just to you, Libby, back to where we started and Anne Widdicombe, and it seemed to me to the heart of Christianity's alleged difficult place in public life is now traditional Christianity's attitude towards homosexuality. And lots of young people, lots of people generally, think that homophobia is akin to racism in some way. And they think that a religion that teaches somehow that homosexuality is wrong is equivalent to how we would have 50 years ago seen racism preach from a, a pulpit in South Africa. Do you accept that a homophobia is what is causing Christianity particular problems amongst so-called liberals or uh, and secondly do you accept that homophobia and racism are equivalent well Big question uh, on a day after some poor lad had bleach thrown in his eyes and not got nearly blinded outside a club for being gay I can say it's has some of the side effects of racism mm. but I'm not very interested in comparing isms and to be honest I know an awful lot of very devout and fervent and decent Christians who have no problem whatsoever with two people of the same gender loving one another. Mm. I think, you know, it's it's sectarian. And mm. I think there's fear in it. Homophobia is filled with all kinds of weird fear. It's often men's fear that they might get infected and go that way. I don't, I don't really think there's any point in, in kind of shambling around this issue. Um, of homophobia and Christianity. It is a problem. It's a problem with people, you know, moaning against equality law. But I just say, obey the damn law. You know, just just do it. Render unto Caesar, which things are Caesar's. And, you know, go happily to your God. It sounds uh, easy if you say it that way. But if in future laws require Christians to employ people who perhaps don't support traditional uh, Christian teaching on homosexuality or whatever, then you are actually imposing law on a faith and you're potentially changing the faith that's where employ the tensions them, become employ real. them as what well for example if you require a church to employ someone who believes that homosexuality is right and that the church does not believe that homosexuality is right you are one freedom to be yourself is conflicting with freedom of religion. These are real tensions. Just saying render to Caesar, I doesn't, don't think quite captures the complexity of some yes, of this. I think one would argue that one out case by case, but the idea of the gay caretaker actually wanting to work for the evangelical <laughs> church seems a bit remote to me. Well, well, <laughs> I do think um, that, that, lib that liberals or and British liberal values have to have self-confidence, and so I do. I do think it's reasonable, uh, with some degree of compromise and moderation, to insist upon uh, people living in a tolerant liberal society according to those values. But it can go too far. And the example of not allowing people to wear crosses in work is obviously an example of that. That's kind of well, silly. We, we, that was just silly. We do need to move on to our next topic, and that's the subject that you've chosen for us, Danny, which is Europe and Jean-Claude Juncker. Now, I don't know whether you've read his Twitter account, but um, I uh, happened upon it the other day. And actually, I thought it was a parody account at first, because it's got things like, I am not on my knees before any leader. I won the elections. And uh, a little bit later, he said, I am uh, uh, more confident than ever that I will be the next European Commission 
president. And if a sort of Eurosceptic Bill Cash wanted to write an account to sort of imply that these Eurocrats were arrogant, I think they would come up with something not dis- yes. far He's different from what he's come up with. And you think this is a battle that Cameron yeah, must the, win? This is a very important job. And Jean-Claude Juncker is a very unimpressive individual with not that much experience and incredibly arrogant and therefore we don't want him to to hold that very important job. If we believe as I do that Britain ought to exercise influence in Europe then this is a good subject on which to exercise it and one of the things that I'm surprised by and I've encountered it quite a lot are people who think because we are in a minority on this or we might be in a minority on it um, we ought not to make such a fuss. You know Britain's showing itself outside Europe. In fact the most pro uh, EU thing that we can do is to prevent the EU from getting a not very good and highly centralising president of the commission at a time when not being very good and being highly decentralising is quite dangerous. And so uh, there is a substantive reason, which is which I've just given for not having uh, him, but there's also a procedural reason. This is an attempt to suggest that the European Parliament should choose and then elect the president of the commission. In fact, it should be chosen by the leaders of the political parties and they, uh, sorry, by the leaders of governments and they uh, are not by the leaders of the European political parties. And I think that that is an important principle to stand by. So both for substantive and procedural reasons, this is a really important battle and worth fighting despite the fact that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Obviously, when you do that, you lose credit with others when you disagree with them. And all of the main British political parties united against him. I think the Labour Party on Monday said that they opposed the candidacy as well. Yeah, it's difficult to to look at. You know, it, really, if you look across the great the leaders of Europe, is he honestly the best that we can do? Mm. He hasn't. Uh, you know, you've read from his Twitter account. He's got absolutely a tin ear. But in every way, you know, if you read the details account of people dealing with him, even in Luxembourg. Which which is an absurdly small country uh, for him to have had experience of dealing with. People were just not very impressed by him, and he lost power because uh, because of partly because of his inability to manage an executive organisation. After I think three or after winning three or four elections, yes, he lost that's the true. Nineteen years, but yeah. his but, but, but his but his but his 
you know, I, I visited Luxembourg, as I'm sure you have, uh, and I, I saw the whole of Luxembourg on a Sunday, and then I had lunch. And, and I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> and uh, can I just make clear that if there's any Luxembourg subscribers to the Times, some of us love Luxembourg very much. I don't, no, I don't dislike it as a place, but I'm just saying, if you, if you, he's, this is the experience which is uh, designed to qualify him for being a leader of Europe. And maybe 19 years ago, he was very good, but more recently, even in Luxembourg, the comment on yeah. him has been his inability to manage bureaucratic organisations. Charles Wattel, you may have written leaders on this subject, for all we know, on um, this uh, candidate. Do you think that David Cameron is um, spending too much effort on this? Do you think he'd be uh, wiser using up his political capital on some of the other big battles that uh, No, I think it's a, smart, it's a smart battle to have picked. He's got some allies already. Mm-hmm. He needs some more. It's not inconceivable that he'll find them. And, and he's on the right side of the argument. I think it's worth saying that the, the basis of Juncker's claim to have so-called won this election, if I understand it right, is a clause in the Lisbon Treaty that requires heads of government to take account of recent European elections. Mm. Well, what is the overwhelmingly obvious <laughs> lesson of recent European elections? It is not that the EPP, that the, the centre-right grouping has triumphed. They lost 51 seats. It is that fringe parties here and elsewhere uh, have given everyone else a shellacking or at least a very serious warning. That's the lesson that leaders have to take account of. And so I think, yes, it's a smart battle to have picked and, uh, and he needs to go on until he wins it. Are you pro or anti Juncker, Libby, or are you oh, in the don't care? I, I think box? I, I certainly care. I mean, I think Cameron is right to be fighting this battle. I say all parties are on his side, and I think several other European leaders as well. Um, but what keeps coming home to me is what an appallingly badly designed and managed and constructed structure the EU must be if a clown like Juncker can get so very near the top of it mm. and potentially win the prize. It, it says something about the whole EU structure. Is, is he a clown or is he pieces. just an arch-federalist who believes that European Union should share police, army of, and judiciary? A lot of his recent behaviour has suggested he's, he's a bit of a clown and he's he, he clearly, you know, I am not on my knees. He's mm. clearly about the power. He he's about, he's yeah. about his, his, own, his, his own self-aggrandisement and the aggrandisement of his views at the expense of all others. Uh, I don't, he doesn't sound at all like a competent politician. He doesn't sound really like a very competent thinker everything I've read and as I say how can somebody of this quality be getting so very near the top is there something wrong with the EU well he's you know what, he, what he's offering uh, the other people in the EU is an assertion of the power of central European uh, government obviously a person who's leader of Luxembourg is going to look to the European Union um, as the source of power because they're such a small country uh, and as head of the European Union is being they that aggrandizes them and so one of the reasons why the European Parliament, you know, is the same reason why people always want tax cuts for themselves or public expenditure on the things that they're interested in. This is the European Parliament wants this partly because it can increase its own power. And the European People's Party, of which he's the candidate, uh, and chose him partly a, as an assertion of their um, that they still believe in the centralising mission of the European Union, mm. despite the fact that it's now a much bigger, broader party. In fact, some people have said, oh, you know, if only the the Conservative Party was in the European People's Party, it could have stopped this happening. Actually, it wouldn't have stopped it happening. And the choice of him suggests that the characterisation that have been made of the EPP, which is that it's a centralised body that still holds a sort of Luxembourgeois view of the European Union, has been actually um, demonstrated to be true by this. Charles, what does this say 
if anything, about Angela Merkel because we read that she doesn't really have any enthusiasm for Juncker, but because of constraints within her, her grand coalition in Berlin, her uh, own party want her to back this candidate. It doesn't seem to me to be very good for Merkel then to become this great reformer for Europe in the years ahead when we really try and renegotiate what Europe looks like. No, nor to be seen to be flip-flopping. Actually, she seems to change her emphasis, and you only ever get emphasis from Merkel, mm. uh, on whether uh, she, is, how hard she's backing Juncker's candidacy. She changes from week, from week to week. When she's talking to Cameron, she indicates that she might side with Cameron. When she's not, she indicates that she's going to stick with, with Juncker. We're all ganging up on him uh, and in his absence, uh, he's not here to defend himself. I should say one thing. He has, he has said that uh, were he to get the job, he uh, would be willing to negotiate in good faith or some phrase like that w- with, with Britain, but not on the four key uh, 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 bases of, of the European Union, including freedom of movement. And I'm with him on that. Freedom of movement is freedom of movement. And uh, if Lincolnshire, bless our readers in Lincolnshire, objects to uh, influx from new European members uh, as a result of that freedom, then uh, 600,000 Brits on the costas are going to object if that freedom is limited in any way as well. So I I think uh, that argument uh, about abusing or somehow trimming freedom of movement is a silly one. Okay, Danny, just finally on this topic, um, will the consequences of Cameron... um, perhaps stopping Juncker, it seems a little bit more likely that he might be stopped um, now. Um, Will the consequences be, though, that these are always trade-offs in the European Union, that we don't get the kind of plum portfolio in the rest of the Commission that we would want, and perhaps federalists have put in some of the other key jobs? Isn't this the nature of the European Union? Yes, possibly. I still think, actually, uh, that this would still be a battle worth fighting, uh, even if that were to be the cost. And you can't guarantee that it would be, because the the argument for a British person doing an economic portfolio is supported by a lot of North European uh, countries who benefit from it economically and who share, you know, part of the reason for our strength and the reason why people want us in the European Union is precisely that we reflect, uh, that we we support that part of Europe that's paying for the other part. Okay, well, let's look um, further east now and go to our third topic, which is the one you've nominated for us, Giles Wittell, and I should welcome you again, your first time on the um, podcast. Putin won Crimea, and we've all focused on that, and we're worried about that, and we're worried about the violence we see over lots of eastern Ukraine at the moment. But you want us to think, actually, overall, Putin has suffered a strategic defeat. Tell us a bit more about why you think that. For the first time since 1991, you have... Uh, a Ukrainian president who was won by a landslide. Nobody, including Putin, uh, is disputing the result. And he's made very clear where he thinks Ukraine should go. That is a strategic loss for Putin, the like of which he did not suffer in 2005 or in, in any of the upheavals uh, since since independence. He, uh, Yushchenko and Timoshenko, the previous leaders who appeared inclined to steer Ukraine towards Europe manifestly failed. Before them was Kuchma, a, a Kremlin stooge. After them was Yanukovych, another Kremlin stooge. The election was critical. This is a new era for most of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we are naturally focusing on the chaos of a, a 
war in the east but and here's what we know the the russian the provocateurs in that uh in that in the fighting in the east uh do include russian citizens equipped from russia mm. putin is up to his neck in it um it is also clear that the ukrainian army is a, a very poorly uh run and is making a, a a hash of it and and taking a very heavy-handed approach to it but um but putin has lost western ukraine he has succeeded very cleverly in uh, changing the subject with crimea the speech in which he welcomed crimea and sevastopol back into the russian federation or into the russian federation was an extraordinary moment in his leadership of russia even by his standards and it and made him very popular in russia mass- massively popular i w- i would reckon uh, equivalent to at least a jump of 5 percentage points in gdp which brings us to the other point uh, to, to, to explain that a minute so you uh, lost me then the reason for his popularity over since 90 since uh, uh, for the past 12 years has basically been steadily rising gdp and his yeah. success in passing that on to russian citizens i see um uh, russian growth has slumped from about 7% a year to nothing now and uh, he is in dire need of distractions from that as well crimea provided it uh, eastern ukraine could as well but in due course he's going to need other distractions and i recently returned from kyrgyzstan an old uh stomping ground of mine where i spoke with a former minister in an in a recent interim government as they as they struggle uh, uh, with democracy themselves who uh, was deeply worried and it's the same with with the ethnic kyrgyz majority there most most of them that the eurasian customs union that putin is building and which he wanted ukraine to be the uh, fourth member of is now is now going to uh, include kyrgyzstan it is it's going to happen sometime w- w- within uh, this year probably or, or the next calendar year and um uh, this i don't think anyone should be under any illusions that this is not a eurasian equivalent of the eu this is as this uh, minister uh, put it a mechanism for isolation to protect oligarchs mainly russian oligarchs and you can see the evidence all over this small and very beautiful striving country mm. as uh, as russia essentially tries to claw it back into the old empire so how how worried about this are you um danny finkelstein are we seeing the our the, lots of people have said that after the soviet union collapsed we treated ro- russia badly we punished them rather than welcoming them into the community are we seeing the culmination of that process now with putin going back to some of the old worse inward looking cronious soviet tendencies well i i <coughs> i would sort of say yes to the second half without necessarily saying for yes to the first half in other words i don't really think what's happening there is necessarily our fault but it's certainly very disturbing and the only thing that sort of prevents one from being full-blooded about it is that it's very difficult to know what to do about it um apart from be clear that it's wrong and you know one of my concerns about Syria um was um that we yielded the initiative to Putin and made him stronger by making him a successful world player and i think Barack Obama has been disappointingly passive as he's watched that happen and sometimes people have been quite naive about what Putin is doing uh, but having said that uh, which all sounds fine it is actually quite hard to know uh, once one takes that perspective what to actually do about it uh, save for making you know important but but ne- nevertheless symbolic gestures uh, mm-hmm. to the one opposes what he's doing and that we stand by 
people who are trying to fight for liberty in their countries, but it is difficult. In t- terms of symbolic gestures, he seems to be the master of symbolic gestures. Libya uh, is now allowing a referendum on whether Volvograd returns to the name of Stalingrad. He seems to be reconnecting with some of Russia's I, most ugly past. I, or Europe's most ugly past too. I worry a lot about Putin because what you have here is, think about Germany, think about a big country which has lost something and been humiliated and there's a strong leader and there's a flatlining economy and what does that strong leader do? He picks on minorities, in Putin's case gays, all these laws, it all hangs together. He picks on nearby countries which could be sort of easy pickings um, and he gets an enormous surge of popularity. I mean, we're looking at the 30s, we're looking at the rise of Hitler, maybe on a smaller scale, maybe on a less disastrous scale in the end. But the pattern looks clear to me. I worry about Putin a lot. You're looking a bit sceptical at that Hitler comparison, Giles. Not yet Hitler, but, you know, it's the pattern, isn't it? No, I mean, Libya is in good company. Hillary Clinton and Prince Charles have both (laughs) uh, noticed the same historical parallel with annexing annexing neighbours. I just say that part of the problem is the uh, more or less complete success of the Kremlin, the excuse me, the Kremlin propaganda machine in persuading Russians in Russia and in the surrounding countries, the uh, the Russian minorities, uh, and among them increasingly now uh, Russians who we would hitherto have regarded as liberal, that the West's policy is one of encirclement, and that. Russia is once again in a fight not just for um, natural frontiers, defensible natural frontiers, but for its very soul. Mm. And talking to uh, Russians, you you despair quite quickly uh, because of this information gap. Yeah, Giles, we're going to have to finish it there. I'm afraid. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, Danny. Thanks to Dave McGuire. Uh, my producer as well Uh, just a reminder that if you are a Time subscriber and want to uh, read some background articles uh, from what we've been discussing today please go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and you can also leave comments there on anything that you have heard that's what Kenny did in response to last week's podcast in which he discussed the application of the King of Spain and Kenny said it's easy to dismiss as anachronistic and irrelevant but the monarchy has evolved and provides a unified, uh, unifying and dignified head of state. So do go to that uh, blog as well where you can subscribe via iTunes to this podcast so you never miss an episode but thank you for listening until next week goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.